Welcome to the Aspen Chapel podcast with Nicholas and Heather Vesey. So this is the penultimate uh, talk that I'm going to be doing um, on the Sermon on the Mount. And after all, all the teaching Jesus uh, gives us in that sermon, uh, he now addresses both his followers and those uh, that might choose to follow. Watch out, he says, for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you'll recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognise them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy in your name. And in your name, did we not drive out demons? And in your name, did we not perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So he warns us against teachers who will take advantage of us and disciples who use the teaching rather than serving it. It was Ram Das who said that on your spiritual journey, you have to go from your, spiritual, your spirituality being in service to your psychodynamics to your psychodynamics being in the service of your spiritual journey. In other words, your head has to be in service of your heart rather than your heart being in service to your head. Jesus is saying here that if your spiritual practice is just a part of your consuming ego, then it'll not get you anywhere. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven, those who open themselves to the universal mind rather than serving the rational mind, who will find, only those who open themselves to that universal mind will find that peace that passes all understanding. In this passage of the sermon, Jesus is talking about the importance of recognising that when all is said and done, it's the relationship between you and the universal mind that's important. And to be true to that, you have to serve only that, not some teacher or some set of rules. We're all completely on our own. And having learnt the rules of the game, then it's us, up to us to play the game rather than follow somebody else's rules. And it's much easier, isn't it, to follow what others say rather than think things out for ourselves. You can see it in the way that religions develop. You know, in Christianity, the veneration of the church and priests as being the intermediary between God and the people 
is really what led to the Reformation. The church was terrified of people trying to work it out for themselves because it took away the power that the church held over them. It's for that reason that the church wouldn't let the Bible be translated from the Latin into local languages because if they thought that if the people were able to read the Bible themselves, then there'd be no need for priests. You can see it today in the slavish way uh, that the letter of the Bible is followed by some parts of Christianity and by the moral codes that are so strongly set up, codes of behavior that are then enforced. You don't have to work it out for yourself. Someone else will do it for you. And it's why cults are so attractive. You know, clear ways to enlightenment that all should follow. The way set out by the great leader that's the answer to all. Do you know, as part of my training, um, I spent some time in Kyoto in Japan, serving the diocese there. And, you know, cults are really big in Japan. Uh, and while I was there, I attended a conference on Japanese cults. And as part of the, con the conference, we had a day out. We took the afternoon out to visit the temple of one of the larger cults in uh, Kyoto. Well, you know, when we were on the bus, there's great levity about, uh, we all swore to drag each other out if there's any chance of being enamored by the cult once we got there. And then as we arrived, we all lined up to go in. Um, and as we went by the reception, we are met by the greeter with a namaste. And he said to us, welcome home, as he did that. It left us all quite shaken. Most religions are clear, though, about this idea of self-mastery, which is why Ling Zhangju came up with a famous phrase to his disciples in the ninth century, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. The idea being that we need to let go of our teachers in order to attain true liberation. This is self-mastery where we're not looking to some spiritual master that we follow, but we recognize ourselves as containing all that we need for our own self-mastery. Interestingly, the word master comes from the Latin word magister, which is someone having control or authority over a place. And in, in turn, the word magister has its root in the word magis, which means important or great. Self-mastery is where we recognize that there is no one else to tell us how to live our lives. And we decide to take on that level of responsibility. We can use teachers to help us on our way. And we finally have to realize in the end that it's us who are in the driving seat. And I think, you know, that's the Aspen Chapel's attitude to spiritual learning. We recognize that each of us are in the driving seat of our education. Education, educare, to draw out wisdom being drawn out from ourselves. But we support each other in that enterprise. In discussing a Zen Cohen, Robert Kennedy, the Zen master, 
said, this is a warning, the koan, to avoid imitation, to avoid being only followers. For even if we follow perfectly every word and gesture of a perfect master, it is not enough to bring about our own liberation and development as human beings. He then quotes the venerable Jaitar on self-mastery. And, and Jaitar says, I do not seek the way, yet I'm not confused. I do not venerate the Buddhas, yet I'm not conceited. I do not meditate for long periods of time, yet I'm not lazy. I do not restrict myself to one meal a day, yet I'm not attached to food. I do not know what is enough, yet I'm not covetous. When the mind seeks nothing, this is called the way. Finding the way by not following the way. And it comes back to that idea that there is no way to follow. Just living life to the full by responding to our portal of the present moment while being attached to nothing. I love that famous stanza from the sayings of the Buddha. It is not good conduct that helps you on the way, nor ritual, nor book learning, nor withdrawal into the self, nor deep meditation. None of these confer mastery and joy. O seeker, rely on nothing until you want nothing. That's really what Jesus is getting at here. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. And, you know, we all know the type. We've all seen it. Thus, by your fruits, you'll recognize them. You know, we can see that. And then, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's not the appearance of piety or belief that's important, but what's important is that one does the will of the Father, the universal mind, rather than the will of our rational minds. We're not going to be enlightened by slavishly following the rules. In his own time, Jesus always fought against that. You know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look, he's a glutton and a drunken, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That aphorism, moderation in all things, including moderation. Jesus is telling us that in order for us to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must take ownership of the process and practice self-mastery. We don't have to follow any rules or mortify our bodies. We just have to enter into that sacrament of the present moment, that place where we respond with humility and we find the love that's within. The difficulty is that we have to trust and have 
the presence of mind to work things out for ourselves rather than rely on other people to tell us the way. That doesn't mean we don't study or try to find out the best way to live. It's our responsibility to use our brains. However, having done that, you get to the realisation that not knowing is actually the key to the door. Not blindly not knowing, but not knowing out of an understanding that our not knowing is both an answer and a question. You know, often we just don't think we're up to it. We don't think that little me has the ability or, or the presence of mind to be able to negotiate our way. Surely, you know, other people will know better. They'll be able to tell us what to do. But taking that authority is the key thing for self-mastery, knowing that we do know the way in our own lives. It's an attitude that uses the mind to accept rather than control, and then to respond rather than react. So learning is important, and we should also choose our teachers carefully. But in the end, we have to let go of those teachers and their methods, and we have to forge our own paths. And, you know, that's when the journey really begins. We often think that the journey begins with our teachers, with our practices, as we make our way through the difficult mindsets and spiritual practices that were offered. Even the mindsets here that Jesus is talking about through the Sermon on the Mount, all the understanding and the ways of being that he suggests. But in reality, those are just a preparation. The real journey begins when we realize that portal of the present moment and let go of all that's taken us to get there and begin to live a life ordained not by our rational minds, but by the greater mind of the Father in heaven, as Jesus would call it, or that universal mind, as we might call it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Only when we let go of everything else and begin to be moved by our participation with the present moment does our journey really begin. Everything else is preparation. As T.S. Eliot put it in The Four Quartets, in order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by way which is a way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you're not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own. And where you are is where you're not. It's a place of arrival that he's talking about that contains the whole journey. And 
we have all we need for that journey, a journey that begins and ends in the present moment. In another tradition, the Tao Te Ching expresses it perfectly. Lao Tzu says, without opening your door, you can open your heart to the world. Without looking out of your window, you can see the essence of the Tao. The more you know, the less you understand. The master arrives without leaving, sees the light without looking, achieves without doing a thing. There's a sense of nothing left to do that allows us to truly serve. We're not trying to get anywhere, not following any teaching or practice. Instead, we're just available to respond with love to whatever the universe brings. And this is not to be lazy. It's to be attuned to something else other than the dictates of our mind, our religion, or our practice. It is to leave behind the childish ambition to get somewhere, but instead take the path that takes us to where we need to go. As Peter says to Jesus right at the end of the gospel, John's gospel, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. It's the same message, to be taken by the path rather than taking the path ourselves. So how does this work out in practice? We have to live our day-to-day lives. Some of it, particularly the Elliot bit, you know, could sound a bit obscure. We're all still, I think, in the business of learning. I'm not going to be giving up my practice or my study anytime soon. They inform me and they give me confidence to carry on. But at the same time, I notice that I'm letting go of the idea that I'm actually getting anywhere by doing these things, the study and the practice, that they're an end in themselves. The old idea that the reward of sitting in silence is sitting in silence. There's no other way of being, no great enlightenment that I'm striving to achieve. My consciousness now is all there is and all it could be. And I'm completely satisfied with it as it is. I don't have to be anything or anyone else. And I think I'm also letting go of the idea of getting anywhere in my life, of trying to achieve anything or trying to become something or someone else. I mean, increasingly feeling a contentment in just doing what I do. What comes my way is what comes my way. And I don't need to think about going elsewhere. And if difficult things come up, well, then I hope I have the wisdom to deal with them. And then, even if they get more difficult, I'll be able to deal with that too. I think we have to adopt an attitude of radical acceptance. 
of ourselves as we are, of our lives and the part that we have to play, and also of the universe and accepting what it deals us. Only then can we fully play the greater game that is set before us. And we have to take that into every single moment, sitting where you are right now, at a meal with your family, at work, at rest, with your money, with your politics. You have to be okay with it all. And your striving should only be to have yourself become more deeply accepting of it. This is the essence of the trust that's behind the self-mastery that Jesus is referring to at the end of the sermon. One that doesn't rely on teachers or practices, but which allows us to find our own path through letting go of everything else. That is what I think is meant by self-mastery, where we ourselves become our own masters, not looking to the Buddha or Jesus or Mohammed to do it for us. We have all we need in relationship with the divine through that portal of the present moment. And it's at this moment that our journey truly begins. Good. So um, anything from you on that, do you think? There was so much in that, honestly. But uh, the, the, really, the, the thing that really stands out to me is, uh, and interestingly, this is something I've been thinking about lately a lot on my own, yeah. um, is the importance, the, the whole thing about the, the teacher. I feel like Jesus was always... Um, pointing to the teacher within people. In, in every encounter he had with anybody, he was always drawing out the wisdom, the teacher within that person. And it's interesting to me that we, the, there seems to be, like we, we all so badly need a teacher. There's almost like, like we all, so as you were saying, so long to be led and to be told what so and, and how to live our lives. And there's this sort of desperateness in our human fragility around, around all of that. And I, I feel this is just such an important thing that somehow we have, to, we have to learn to find the teacher within us and, and know that that teacher, the Christ, or whatever you want to call it, is within us. The kingdom of heaven is within us. And it's, you know, it's our lifelong journey to, to find that and to live into it and to be a little bit um, wary of becoming too attached to any particular teacher out there, which I think is, is quite a common thing, you know, for people to do. And I think Jesus was aware of it because when Nicodemus went to him and said, you know, good teacher, he said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And he's, he's almost saying in that moment, you know, don't make it about me. Yeah. You know, make it about that, that inner spirit that, that we're talking about. I feel like a, a real teacher is, is always pointing to the teacher within the other person. It's never about themselves. Yeah. And the, I think that's something to, to be aware of with any teacher. The minute it becomes about them, then, then it gets, you know, you're into dangerous territory in yeah. a way, you know? Yeah. I find a fantastic little passage um, in the um, 10 ox herding pictures. Um, and we used the 10 ox herding pictures before. Um, and this is number seven. And it's the one with the... the, the um, 
the ox herd sitting outside the house without the ox or, the, or, or, or at all. So he, he's found his true nature. Um, I used it on the front cover of my book, if you've not read it, Developing Consciousness, available everywhere. Um, and this is what... Um, this is what it says, and it's about self-mastery. He's been looking for uh, the ox, his true nature. He's been following the sutras and all that sort of business. And there are a series of pictures, and this is uh, um, number seven. It says, uh, it's called, The Ox Disappears, The Herdsman Remains. The herdsman has come home on the back of the ox. Now there is no ox any longer. The herdsman sits alone, quiet, at leisure, singing and dancing, the herdsman leads a leisurely life, not bound to anything anymore. Between sky and the heaven, he has become his own master. Thanks for listening. If you feel moved to make a donation to the chapel, please go to aspenchapel.org. Thank you. And if you'd like to receive these podcasts regularly, subscribe to the Aspen Chapel through Apple, Google Play, YouTube, or any other outlet.